Ivar the Boneless, born Ivar Ragnarsson, was the son of the legendary king and warrior Ragnar Lothbrok, and his mother was the seer named Auslog. He was born sometime in the 9th century. His parents were two legendary figures in Scandinavian history, so Ivar would need to be great in order to carve out his own legacy, distinguishing himself from his father Ragnar and legendary grandfather Sigurd, who was said to have slain the dragon Fafnir. According to Ragnar's saga, Ivar's bonelessness was the result of a curse. His mother, Auslog, was Ragnar's second wife and had the powers of sorcery and foresight. She warned her new husband that they must wait for three nights before consummating their marriage, but Ragnar was overcome with lust and did not heed her words. The saga says, Three nights together, but yet apart, shall we bide, nor worship the gods as yet. From my son, this would save a lasting harm, for boneless is he thou, wouldst now forget. Ivar's nickname was Ivar the Boneless. No historical sources directly tell us why he was called that. However, there are some explanations, and these include that the Vikings were well known for their ironic nicknames. So Ivar could have been a huge Viking, over six foot five, perhaps even close to seven foot, with obviously huge bones. Another simple explanation is that he may have been double jointed, and the last is that he may have been born with weak bones, as in Ragnar's saga, it is said that Ivar was unable to walk and had to be carried everywhere. His name may stem from the Latin for hated, as he was hated by Christians all over Britain, as he was said to torture them to death if they did not denounce their faith. However, his curse may have been a number of things, for example, his hatred for Christians and his wicked ways towards them, his weak bones, or maybe something completely different. Ivar's first challenge in life occurred when he was still a boy. His father Ragnar had amassed many enemies on his military campaigns, and Saxo Grammaticus wrote, The Jutes and Scanians were kindled with an unquenchable fire of sedition. They disallowed the title of king to Ragnar, and gave a certain Harald the sovereign power. Ragnar, thinking himself destitute of all resources, took to borrowing help from folk of every age. He crowded the strong and the feeble all together, and was not ashamed to insert some old men and boys among the wedges of the strong. So he first tried to crush the power of the Scanians in the field. Here, he had a hard fight with the rebels. Here too, Ivar the Boneless answered his father's call to war. Although he was in his seventh year, he fought splendidly and showed the strength of a man in the body of a boy. This was the first time Ivar distinguished himself in battle. The rest of Ivar's childhood isn't recorded in history. However, later in Ivar's life, once he was a man, Ragnar took him as a guide since he was acquainted with the country of York. Here, he disembarked his forces, and after a battle which lasted three days, he crushed King Ella's forces. He and the remainder of his army then retreated. 
The affair cost much blood to the English and very little to the Danes. After, Ivar accompanied his father Ragnar and his brothers to Ireland. Then they slew King Melbrick, besieged Dublin, which resulted in their surrender and took all of their wealth. Ivar was quickly learning from his father Ragnar what it meant to be a Viking. However, tragedy would strike. Ragnar Lothbrok would be captured and killed by King Ella and was thrown into a pit of snakes. Ivar would then think of nothing but revenge to appease his father's spirit. Ivar knew that King Ella would need to die by his hand. As well as being a battle-hardened warrior, Ivar was also incredibly clever and he chose to be cunning rather than bold and tried a shrewd trick on King Ella. Begging for a pledge for peace, he asked for a strip of land, and he gained his request, for King Ella supposed that it would cost little, and thought himself happy that so strong a foe begged for a little favour instead of a great one. Ivar also swore never to wage war against King Ella, but Ivar's blood feud meant much more to him than his word to a Saxon king. Ivar would slowly gather his strength on his new land unopposed and would then surround York and take it as his own. Ivar now had a base on the mainland which would prove advantageous to his plan. Meanwhile, while Ivar was amassing his army in the shadows, his brothers came up with a fleet of 400 ships and with open challenge declared war against King Ella. They did this at the appointed time. Ivar would meet up with his brothers, for revenge had brought them together. This was the greatest Viking army to set foot on England, and they became known as the Great Heathen Army, who were personally led by Ivar and his brothers. Ivar and his brothers had bided their time in their fortress. They then decided to march north to invade Northumbria. The great heathen army would again sack York to provoke King Ella into engaging the Vikings. Under Ivar's plan, the Vikings feigned retreat, which caused the Northumbrians to give chase. This allowed the army of King Ella to be encircled, which led to a mass slaughter. The sons of Ragnar were said to have fought with a trance-like fury, perhaps even being in the state of the Berserker. Ivar and his brothers were able to capture King Ella alive, and they would rejoice, for they had something sinister in store for the king that had killed their father. Ivar and his brothers ordered that King Ella be ritualistically executed by using the blood eagle. The flesh on his back would be cut open with a knife, exposing his ribcage. The ribs would then be broken in order for his lungs to be pulled out, forming a wing-like shape hence the name Blood Eagle. Ivar and his brothers would then rejoice, as they had just crushed their most ruthless foe. They would then bask in each other's tales of glory and triumph. King Ella was dead, and Bjorn and Sigurd went back to their own kingdoms. The great heathen army had just taken the ancient kingdom of Northumbria, and Ivar would install a puppet ruler named Egbert, who would act as a glorified tax collector to further fund the army's invasions. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, 
Ivar's great heathen army moved south from York in the year 868 and set up its winter quarters in Mercia at Nottingham. The Vikings' arrival there marked the first recorded threat to the heartlands of Mercia. King Buchred of Mercia sent for help from King Ethelred of Wessex and his brother Alfred, who would later be known as Alfred the Great. The combined armies of Mercia and Wessex assembled before the Danish position. Ivor realised that he was outnumbered and could not hope to win a pitched battle. He instead used his cunning once again and secured a peace. This proved to be the Treaty of Nottingham. Henry of Huntingdon, writing almost 250 years later, described Ivar's response. Ivar then, seeing that the whole force of England was there gathered, and that his host was the weaker, and was there shut in, betook himself with smooth words, cunning fox that he was, and won a peace and troth from the English. He then went back to York, and abode there for one year with all cruelty. Under the cover of this peace, Ivar crossed into Mercia with his army and his brother, Aberagnason, but his aim was to subdue the Kingdom of East Anglia. According to Abbo of Fleury's life of St Edmund, this is what transpired once the Viking forces entered East Anglia. Ivar suddenly invaded the country just like a wolf and slew the people, men, women and innocent children. Soon afterward, he sent to King Edmund of East Anglia a threatening message that he should submit to his allegiance if he cared for his life. The messenger came to King Edmund and boldly announced Ivar's message. Ivar, our king, bold and victorious on land and sea, commands that you share your hidden gold hoards and give your ancestral possessions to him and that you shall be his vassal king. If you want to stay alive, since you don't have the forces that can resist him, Edmund responded, Never in this life will Edmund submit to Ivar the heathen war leader, unless he first submits himself to the saviour Christ. The great heathen army then, under the command of Ivar, decimated Edmund's forces in an unnamed battle near Thetford. Edmund would allegedly survive the battle and returned to his hall to await the coming of Ivar the king and warlord. King Edmund, against whom Ivar advanced, stood inside his hall. The impious one then bound Edmund and had him beaten with rods. He was afterwards whipped. In between the whiplashes, Edmund called out with true belief in the Saviour Christ. Because of his belief, because he called to Christ to aid him, the heathens became furiously angry. They then threw spears at him as if it were a game, until he was completely covered, resembling the bristles of a hedgehog. When Ivar saw that the noble king would not forsake Christ, but with resolute faith called after him, he ordered Edmund beheaded, and the heathens did so. While Edmund still called out to Christ, the heathen dragged the holy man to his death, and with one stroke, struck off his head. Ivar wanted to test King Edmund's faith, to see if his god would intervene to save the king. 
Edmund's brother Edwald fled to Dorset and became a hermit due to the fear Ivar had installed in the country. He abandoned his royal bloodline. Thus, Ivar put an end to the East Anglian royal dynasty. King Edmund of East Anglia had just been ceremonially killed, now known to history as Saint Edmund the Martyr. His story became legend as he refused to become a puppet king for Ivar and didn't denounce his god in face of certain death. The English chronicler and monk Simeon of Durham wrote of Ivar's reign of terror. Far and wide, it destroyed churches and monasteries with fire and sword. When it departed from place to place, it left nothing standing but roofless walls. Ivar then returned to York, leaving the Viking army under the joint control of his brothers, Halfdan and Ubba. In the year 870, Ivar's brothers sued for peace in England. Ivar, however, could not stay idle, and he then went to Scotland and waged war. In this venture, he was joined by Olaf the White. It was a joint attack, Olaf sailing up the Clyde with a large fleet of dragon-headed longships, and Ivar would head northwest from York. They met at Dumbarton Rock, a fortress of the Britons and the ancient capital of the Strathclyde Kingdom. The stronghold had, over the years, successfully resisted the attacks of the Picts, the Scots and the Angles. However, according to the annals of Ulster, Ivar and Olaf besieged the fortress for 40 days until its water supply ran out. Ivar would then pillage the castle. The annals of Ulster record that once the siege had ended, many prisoners were transported to Dublin to be sold into slavery, as at this time, Dublin was a leading slave market in Europe. After this, Ivar once again made his way to Dublin and was known as the King of the Norsemen of all Ireland and Britannia, also being the King of Dublin. Ivar was a walking legend just like his father, the killer of kings and the bane of royal bloodlines, but he could never settle to rule. He always needed more, another kingdom and another adventure. In the year 871, Ivar arrived back in Dublin where he remained as King of the Northmen of all Ireland and Britain, until his death in the year 873. The reason of his death remains unknown, but many speculate it was due to his curse. Ivar would establish his dynasty of the Uayamere, and would forge a legacy and repute that would last a millennia. Ivar took his contingent of the Great Heathen Army, and forged a kingdom encompassing Dublin, the Isle of Man, the Western Isles, Orkney, and large parts of the northern and western Scottish coast. The Ivar dynasty, or descendants of Ivar, would go on to be the most powerful Viking clan in Britain for a time. According to legend, Ivar's body was brought back to England at his own request, and was buried on the coast to act as a talisman to prevent further conquests of his kingdoms. 13th century Icelandic sagas describe William the Conqueror's actions. He went to the burial site and broke the mound and saw that Ivar's body had not decayed. William had a large pyre made 
upon which Ivar's body was burned. After burning the warrior's body, William, himself a descendant of the Viking chieftain Rollo of Normandy, went on to conquer all of England, allegedly breaking Ivar's curse on the land. Ivar the Boneless destroyed the last Britonic kingdom in Scotland, consisting of ancient people of the Celtic language, who inhabited Britain from the Iron Age. He also ended the line of the kings of Northumbria and East Anglia. Ivar's legacy lives on in both history and popular culture. In the annals of history, few figures emerge with the aura of mystique and power as Rollo, the Viking Jarl. Rollo's saga is one of legendary proportions, weaving together the adventurous spirit of the Vikings, the complexities of medieval politics, and the fierce will of a leader determined to carve his name into the annals of time. Rollo's story serves as a testament to the enduring allure of Viking lore, while also shedding light on the intricate interplay of power, culture, and destiny. Rollo's origins are shrouded in mystery, a characteristic common to many Viking leaders of his time. Believed to have been born in the late 9th century, Rollo hailed from the rugged landscapes of Scandinavia, where seafaring and raiding were a way of life. The Vikings with their longships and fearsome reputation struck terror into the hearts of coastal communities across Europe. There are some chronicles and Norse sagas that tell us about Rollo's ancestry. However, these sources are not to be fully trusted and may even be interpreted as folklore. The Icelandic sagas claim that Rollo was from Moor, a county in the northmostern part of Norway. The 12th century English historian William of Malmesbury stated that Rollo was born of a noble line among the Norwegians. However, Dodo of St. Quentin, a historian from the 10th century, was commissioned by Richard I of Normandy, Rollo's own grandson, to write a chronicle on the history of Normandy, which included Rollo's life and roots. This piece of work is also known as the Historia Normanorum. While Dodo likely had access to direct family members and other people with a living memory of Rollo, Dado's account could be the most reliable. Nevertheless, this fact must be weighed against the text's potential biases as an official biography. According to Dado, Rollo was a Dane from Dacia, which is Latin for the word Denmark and Sweden. According to Dado, Rollo was a man of unparalleled physical prowess and unyielding determination. He describes Rollo as a towering figure both in stature and presence, whose very aura struck fear into the hearts of his enemies. In his youth, he would go to war with the king of Dacia. Rollo's brother Gorim would fall in battle, and Rollo would despair and go into exile. He would then make his way to England with a band of men, and successfully raid in several kingdoms. According to Snorri Sturluson, Rollo would soon get a reputation for being a ferocious warrior, and he would earn the nickname the Walker, as no horse could withstand his tremendous weight. 
forcing him to walk everywhere. This conveys Rolo's immense size. It's possible that Rolo was one of the warriors in the great heathen army, as their time in England spanned from the years 865 to 878. In what year he joined is unknown, but Rolo is described as fighting in England in several different sources. It was during Rolo's time in England where he struck up a friendship with King Guthrum, otherwise known as King Ethelstan, as he was no longer a Viking, but a baptised Christian. Guthrum was accepted as the King of East Anglia. He was given the blessing of Alfred the Great, after his conversion and after his defeat at the Battle of Eddington, where Alfred overcame Guthrum and the Great Heathen Army in a climactic conflict. If Rollo fought alongside Guthrum as a Jarl in the Great Heathen Army, it further explains their friendship. Rollo would soon look to Francia, a fragmented land due to the internal politics that had been going on in the kingdom for decades. This would make it ripe for sacking and conquering. The sworn pagan adversary, Charlemagne, held the throne as King of the Franks until the year 814. His rule was characterised by numerous conflicts against both political rivals and religious opponents. His frequent triumphs led to the swift territorial expansion, culminating in the year 800 when the Pope declared him the restored Emperor of the Romans. However, this consolidated authority was short-lived. After the death of Charlemagne's son, Louis I, internal discord and civil strife threw the empire back into disarray. Louis I's three sons immediately vied for control, plunging the realm into a violent power struggle. After three years of a bloody deadlock, they eventually reached a peace agreement. The territory split into what later became known as West, Middle and East Francia. Nevertheless, Charlemagne left behind more than a potent legacy. He also accumulated a host of pagan adversaries, thirsting for revenge. Around the year 820, a pagan Viking fleet ventured up the River Seine to pillage along Frankish shores. It is believed that the initial wave of Viking raiders separated from a larger force in Britain upon hearing news of Charlemagne's demise. Motivated by a desire for vengeance and enticed by rumours of immense Frankish wealth, Viking warriors targeted defenceless monasteries and townsfolk. They plundered gold, committed murders, burnt crops and captured slaves, all the while the Frankish Empire crumbled from within. The coastal town of Rouen in particular bore the brunt of repeated Viking onslaughts, leaving it decimated in their wake. By the year 885, Rollo was a fierce battle-hardened Viking chief, with many warriors under his command. He decided to join Siegfried the Sea King in his invasion of Paris, seeing the land as weak due to constant political turmoil. The hostile Vikings began pillaging, sacking, and burning all towns, monasteries and churches on the way to their prize. With hundreds of ships and possibly tens of thousands of men, 
the Vikings arrived outside Paris in late November of the year 885 and demanded tribute. This was denied by Oddo, the Count of Paris, who was left in charge of the city. Although the Count could only assemble several hundred soldiers to defend the city, the Vikings attacked with a variety of siege engines, but failed to break through the city walls, despite days of intense attacks. The siege was maintained for months, but without any significant assaults after the initial attack. As the siege continued, most of the Vikings left Paris to pillage further upriver. The Vikings made a final unsuccessful attempt to take the city during the summer. In October, Charles the Fat, the Emperor of the Carolingian Empire, arrived with his army. Charles encircled Rollo and his immense forces. However, Charles had no intention of fighting. He allowed the Vikings to sail up the River Seine. When the Vikings finally withdrew from France the following spring, Charles gave them 700 pounds of silver as promised. Emperor Charles's prestige in France was greatly diminished after this event, which would create a long-lasting power struggle. Dudo states that Rollo would then make his way to northern France and overrun the land in a series of Viking raids. In one audacious raid, Rollo would carry off Popper Bayou and would marry her. She would give birth to Rollo's first son, now known to history as William Longsword. Popper was the daughter of Count Berengar, a dominant prince of the region that Rollo had conquered. Rollo had just taken the Rouen, with Francia facing much instability, it was left weak. After the siege of Paris in the year 885, Oddo, the Count of Paris, was chosen by the Western Frankish nobles to be their king, following the overthrow of Emperor Charles the Fat. Oddo was crowned in February in the year 888. By the year 898, Charles the Simple would be crowned the King of West Francia due to the death of Oddo. This period was a chaotic time, and Rollo would take full advantage. He would extort provinces in northern France and amass much wealth. Viking warriors would flock to Rollo due to his growing reputation, and northern France would become a hub for Viking trade, being named Normandy or the land of the Northmen. Rollo and his men would soon grow ever more hungry for power. Chart, a prominent city located in the heart of Frankish territory, became a focal point of Rollo's ambitions. Its strategic significance, coupled with its wealth and resources, made it an attractive target for the ambitious Viking lord. The city's fortifications were formidable and its defenders were ready for a prolonged struggle. Rollo, however, proved to be a brilliant commander, employing a combination of siege engines, psychological warfare, and relentless assaults to wear down the enemy's defenses. By the year 911, Rollo had launched his siege on the city. Following a campaign of raiding across the north of Francia, the French army would soon arrive, and it was primarily led by Richard, the Duke of Burgundy, and Robert, 
I of France. Richard attacked Rollo and his forces, and they met in battle. According to legend, the bishop brought out the Virgin's tunic, a holy relic supposedly worn by the Virgin Mary, which blinded the Norsemen and led to a French victory. The French successfully managed to encircle and capture the majority of the Norse army, but Rollo and a small company escaped. Due to Rollo's escape, the raids and occupation of the Rouen by the Norsemen would continue despite the loss. The French opened negotiations with Rollo to end the violence, which would lead to the Treaty of Saint-Clair-sur-Ept. Charles the Simple understood that the Viking raids would not stop, and decided to negotiate a peace. When the treaty was signed, it granted Rollo and his Viking warriors land in the region that would eventually become known as Normandy. In return, Rollo agreed to end his raids and defend the territory against other Viking incursions. Rollo's establishment of Normandy marked a unique chapter in medieval history. He not only embraced the region as his new homeland, but also embarked on a path of integration with the local Frankish population. However, one of the conditions after Rollo lost the Battle of Chartres was to convert to Christianity. The Viking warlord and pagan would be baptised along with many of his men. As a token of Charles the Simple's goodwill, Rollo was to marry Gisela, his daughter. These events would mark the beginning of Normandy as a state. The historian Duddo narrates a humorous story, not repeated in other primary sources, about Rollo's pledge of fealty to Charles as part of the treaty. According to Duddo, the churchmen would urge Rollo to kiss the king's foot to prove his allegiance. Rollo refused, saying, I will never bow my knees at the knees of any man, and no man's foot will I kiss. Instead, Rollo commanded one of his warriors to kiss the king's foot. The warrior complied by raising the king's foot to his mouth while the king remained standing, which caused the king to topple backward, much to the amusement of their entourage. During the ceremony, Rollo would also change his name to Robert. The oath Rollo had just made to the king would make him and his Viking warriors into the future nobility of Normandy. However, the Frankish throne was still not secure, and there was always turmoil within the kingdom. After the year 918, the aristocracy of West Francia began to show its disagreement with Charles's governance. The main reason was the increasing power of Hagano, a noble who was the king's favourite counsellor. Rollo, having sworn loyalty and support to Charles, assumed the vital task of safeguarding the northwestern coast of West Francia. This responsibility came alongside his duty to protect Charles, which he took seriously. In the year 920, Charles the Simple found himself in a dire situation when he was captured by Robert, the brother of Oddo, the king Charles had deposed earlier. 
Following a prolonged period of negotiations, Charles was reluctantly freed. He would soon face a direct challenge from Robert. In response, Charles retaliated, marshalling significant force that included Rollo and his Viking warriors. The pivotal moment arrived in the year 923, at the Battle of Soissons. Despite their success in slaying Robert during the battle, Charles the Simple's army suffered defeat. Charles was captured once more, while Rollo and his remaining forces withdrew to their coastal base camps. In the ensuing power struggle, Robert's son-in-law Rudolf, the Duke of Burgundy, seized the crown and took West Francia for himself. Rudolf, displaying political acumen, wisely refrained from starting his reign with Rollo as an adversary. In an effort to maintain peace, he made significant land concessions, yet the temporary harmony proved short-lived. King Rudolf lacked foresight and failed to grasp Rollo's political aspirations. By the year 925, Rollo and his Viking horde resumed their destructive path, leaving cities plundered and fields scorched in their wake. The precise year of Rollo's death remains a mystery. There are suggestions that he might have persisted in raids until as late as the year 932, or perished in the year 928, shortly after he violated agreements with King Rudolf. Regardless, Rollo was laid to rest in the Cathedral of Rouen. His burial, accompanied by complete Catholic rites. However, according to Ademar de Chaban, a French monk, just before Rollo's death, Rollo would sacrifice many people to Odin, as well as giving gifts to the church. This reflects his Viking roots endured till the end. Rollo's legacy is enduring and multifaceted. As the founder of Normandy, he established a powerful dynasty that played a significant role in European affairs. His descendants, most notably William the Conqueror, would go on to shape the course of English history. The Norman conquest of England in 1066, led by William, a direct descendant of Rollo, transformed the English monarchy and left a profound impact on English culture and language. In summary, Rollo, the Viking warlord turned Norman nobleman, stands as a captivating historical figure. His legacy, as the founder of Normandy and the architect of European dynasties, underscores his enduring impact on the course of medieval history. We know nothing of the early life of Floki. We know he was born sometime in the 9th century at the height of the Viking Age. However, we do have little information on his father, who was named Vilgert, who was said to be a great Viking. As we can see, Floki's last name was Vilgerarson, which means the son of Vilgert. We first meet Floki as a man, where he is leading a single shipped crew. Floki would have been a man during the time of the great heathen army, they arrived in England in around 865, so it's possible Floki was a Viking raider during these times. 
But who really knows, as Floki isn't documented to have been present, as during this time he wasn't the leader of an army. In addition, the only men who are really remembered during the Viking conquest of England were the war chiefs and the sons of the legendary Ragnar Lothbrok. The legend of Floki really begins with a rumour. Floki would hear a tale that a wanderer named Nadod had come across the coasts of Iceland unintentionally. Nadod sailed from Norway to the Faroe Islands attempting to settle there. That didn't really go to plan for him, and on his way back to Norway, he lost his way, and found himself in an unknown land with no sign of human existence, and the land was covered in snow. He then named it Sneerland or Snowland. So in the year 868, Floki decided that he would set out to find this mysterious land, which would only be a rumour. He knew there was no wealth waiting for him, no villages to pillage or raid, no men to fight. They didn't even know where this land was exactly, only that it was to the far north and near the Faroe Islands. Floki was betting his life on this mission, and many members of his crew would bring their families, all their animals and worldly possessions. So how did Floki navigate his way to Iceland when he didn't know where it was and had just heard a sailor's rumour? Floki would use the sun by day to figure out where he was going and the stars by night. He would use a crystal to see where the sun was when it was cloudy as he had no compass, sextant or anything else to offer directional clues the sky would be his guide, but Floki knew he needed more help. So Floki brought three ravens with him. Ravens were important to the Vikings, as they were Odin's birds. Odin the Allfather was the god of wisdom, knowledge and death, amongst many other things, and he was known to wander the earth. So Floki's choice of birds may have been him asking for divine help from Odin, Floki would first set sail to the Faroe Islands. He would then make his way from there to try to find Iceland. After he was at sea for a while, he decided to set the ravens free. The first raven flew back to the Faroe Islands. The second one would fly back to the ship, but the third flew northwest and did not return. Because one raven did not return, Floki thought Odin was guiding him, and that he was close to land. So he headed in the same direction that the raven flew in. Floki and his followers would soon see land, and they would rejoice. The land was one of outstanding beauty. It was not only a land of mountains and rivers, but it also had many glaciers and active volcanoes. After this, Floki was known as Floki of the Ravens. The Vikings believed that the earth originates from two worlds, Muspelheim, the realm of fire, and Niflhelm, the realm of ice. So it's no wonder that Floki and his crew were captivated by the land they saw. They would make a settlement on a bay that was rich with wildlife. They would spend their summer days fishing and collecting eggs, and they would never grow hungry. Perhaps with their backgrounds being warriors rather than farmers. However, the group was so busy hunting that they neglected to store hay for the animals they had brought. When winter arrived, 
It was like nothing they had ever seen before. It was cold, dark and brutal. Some would say a living hell, just like Niflhelm. Their animals would soon starve, and then they would starve, and the cold would creep into their bones. Floki chose to abandon this barren land, but escaping what had become a living hell wouldn't be so easy. In the summer that came, they failed to repair their longship, and this delayed the preparations for their next voyage. By this time, it was already winter, and they could not leave. They spent another dark season, watching the mountains cough out black ash over the glaciers. Finally, when the next summer came, all the survivors departed from a land that they had renamed Iceland. When Floki returned to the mainland where men resided, he had nothing positive to say about the land called Iceland, but one of his crew members, named Herjolf, would say much about the land's potential. With regard to the discovery of Iceland, it turns out it was not completely empty when Floki arrived there. A small number of Irish priests had formed a religious community there. When they saw the Vikings arrive, they no doubt fled for their lives and ran so fast that they left behind some of their books and religious artifacts. Due to this, Floki is still credited with discovering Iceland as we do not know the names of the monks who first stumbled upon it. As fate would have it, Floki eventually returned to Iceland, along with his wife, son, and another daughter. He would settle by a river, and both the river and the town that flourished after he settled there bear his name. Floki and his family would spend the rest of their lives in Iceland. Floki's original voyage to Iceland was in the year 868. In less than a century, in the year 930, the land was said to be fully settled, and its population was estimated to be around 25,000. Iceland has become one of the most important Viking countries, not due to its power, but because it became a centre of Norse culture. The Icelanders would document the deeds of many Viking kings, war chiefs, and war bands, and many great battles and accomplishments. Much of the history and lore that we know about the Vikings is because of the writings, poems, and songs of the Icelanders. Because Floki followed his raven, I am able to present to you his story, and perhaps many other stories I have told you about other Viking legends. Lagatha is featured in the show Vikings and is portrayed as a warrior with unmatched skill. But how did she actually live according to the sources? The book The Deeds of the Danes outlines some of her life. Lagatha was born in a legendary and fabled era, and she would wet her sword with the likes of Ragnar Lothbrok and other celebrated heroes. The tale of Lagatha begins when Fro the king of Sweden invaded Norway. In the battle that followed, Siward the king would receive an incurable wound and would die a few days afterwards. Ragnar and his family would soon receive a huge disrespect. Fro, the king of Sweden, would put the wives of Siward's kinsfolk and friends in a brothel in order to humiliate them, even in death. When Ragnar heard of this, 
he was outraged and he went on a quest in order to avenge the death of his relatives and free their still living women who at this point were still bound to disgrace. King Fro had abused many women's folk and when Ragnar called his men to war many women dressed themselves in men's clothing preferring death over the way they were being treated. Ragnar understood the outrage of many of the women and allowed them to fight for the author of their pain was also his enemy and he wouldn't punish the women but would fight with them for the sake of vengeance. Among one of the women who answered Ragnar's call to war was Lagatha who was described as a skilled Amazon. To put this into perspective, in Greek mythology, Amazons were a group of female warriors and hunters who beat men in physical agility, strength, archery, riding skills, and the arts of combat. Lagatha, who although was a maiden, had the courage of a man, and when the time came for battle against King Fro, she fought in the front line amongst the bravest, with her hair loose over her shoulders. The whole army would marvel at her matchless deeds, for her locks flying down her back betrayed that she was a woman. Once the battle was over and Ragnar had avenged his family, he asked many questions to his fellow soldiers concerning the maiden who he had seen fighting in the front lines. He declared that the victory was gained by her might. He learned that she was a woman of noble birth among the barbarians and tried to woo her by means of messengers. Lagatha would pretend she was interested in Ragnar, but she would also put a dog and a bear to guard her house in order for her would-be lover to not have easy access to her. Ragnar would embark across the sea until finally he reached the valley in which Lagatha resided. He told his men to allow him to confront her alone and there he was met by two beasts, a bear and a hound. Ragnar was not afraid and he thrust his spear at the bear and once it was slain, he choked the hound to death. Lagatha respected him for the peril he had overcome. The couple would marry and they had two daughters whose names have been lost to time, but they also had a son named Friedleif and they would live for three years together in peace. After a time, however, Ragnar would fall in love with another woman named Thora, the daughter of King Herod of Sweden, and he divorced Lagatha, remembering that she had set two savage beasts to kill him. Ragnar would soon return to Denmark, but he would be faced with a civil war. The Jutes and the Scanians had plotted against Ragnar during his time of absence, and had given a man called Harald the title of king. Ragnar knew war was coming and he sent envoys to Norway to gather fighting men. The situation was hopeless and he thought himself destitute of all resources and had to borrow help from folk of every age. Amongst his ranks were the strong and the feeble, the young and the old. Ragnar would soon engage the rebels in battle. He first met the Scanians on the field where he had a hard fight. Lagatha heard that Ragnar was in dire need, and her love for him was still as strong as ever. She would gather her own men, and quickly came to his aid, bringing 120 ships. 
Lagatha was described as having a matchless spirit, even though she had a delicate frame. She covered her splendid bravery at the inclination of the soldiers to waver, for she made a sally about and flew round to the rear of the enemy making them unawares, and thus turned the panic of her friends into the camp of the enemy. This description of Lagatha from the Gesta Denorum indicates that Lagatha saved Ragnar in the height of the battle with a counter-attack. Ragnar's son, who was the commander of a part of the army, Siward, was wounded and their force lacked morale. With Lagatha charging into the enemy with her soldiers, she motivated Ragnar's force to carry on, and at last, the usurper King Harald's army was broken, and their men would retreat. They were routed, however, and Harald himself was slain, and most of his men were slaughtered. After the battle, Lagatha went home and murdered her new husband in the night with a spearhead, which she had hidden in her gown. She then usurped his title, name, and sovereignty, as she thought it better to rule without her husband than to share the throne with him. And so ends the tale of Lagatha. She was the saviour of Ragnar and fought alongside him twice in battle, both times being the reason the battle was won. The show Vikings portrays Lagatha as a shield maiden, which is accurate, but in the show, she is in countless battles and has a son called Bjorn, when according to the sources, Ragnar and Lagatha's son was called Friedleif. There are also other inconsistencies, such as her going to Wessex and other raids which were never documented. But due to there not being much on Lagatha in the Gesta Denorum, it gives the showrunners freedom to do a lot with the character. Although the last we hear of Lagatha is that she murders her husband and takes his throne, a woman ruling during this period in early medieval Scandinavia was very rare, which just goes to show how respected and admired she was. We even see this in the writing of the Gesta Denorum, with my favourite line being, the whole army would marvel at her matchless deeds, for her locks flying down her back, betrayed that she was a woman. Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed the video, if you did, Make sure to like, subscribe and share, and I'll see you all soon for another History Profile.